Well, we're going to be back in Colossians by no surprise to most of you. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 will be our chapter. Our text will be, of course, verse 14 as we continue to unpackage uh, the meaning of this significant verse and this beautiful epistle. Um, So much here for us to take in and consider and uh, very practical application that Paul is making here, very vital for the church. And I trust these messages have been a blessing to you and um, I know it certainly have been a blessing to me as I've been working through this convicting and encouraging and, and really pointing to some important dynamics that are essential for a vibrant and effective local church. And so I hope that you're taking these matters to heart um, as the Lord has graciously given to us these words of encouragement and exhortation from this epistle. Before we get into our passage today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this great nation that you've given to us. Thank you by and through your good providence that you um, have, have kept us, and we ask, Lord, that you would continue to do that. Uh, we ask that you would help us to treasure what you have so graciously given to us and the freedoms that we have, the ability to come together like we are right now, to be assembled together um, and to be um, in, in fellowship like this openly without fear of reprisal is indeed a great blessing. There are many, 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 many around the world. This is the exception, what we are experiencing here. The majority of people around the world are not able to do this in the manner that we do. And many will give their lives, and many have. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to build your church and send those out to do so and to proclaim the gospel and, and to, to build up people in the most precious faith. We ask that you would bless us today as we study your word. Be with us, we pray. Uh, through the Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts and minds to receive instruction. Help us to take these words, Lord, and to apply them, these ancient words, if you will, uh, ever new and ever refreshing and always convicting. Help us, Lord, we pray, to love you more and to love each other more. Help us to always be mindful of the fact that our love for each other is merely a reflection of gratitude and and overwhelming um, joy that we have been redeemed by you as we revel and marvel in your love towards us. Help us, Lord, to be people of your word and people who will live it out in a real and practical way, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm getting feedback up here, so it's just, I'm not sure. Can you guys hear me okay? I'm just getting a funny tone. We're going to be looking here at Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. Let's begin reading with verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, so that's the issue of forbearance, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So there we have that important principle of forbearance, and forgiveness. Really, uh, I think, um, uh, essential application of the virtues that Paul identifies in verse 12. We have those five virtues that he sets out for us. These are the demonstrations. The idea of forbearing and forgiving demonstrate the presence, the reality of these particular uh, actions. And so, uh, we want to make certain that we're understanding that. 
And he goes on to note, as we see in verse, in verse 13, whoever has a complaint against you, anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So we know that Christ is our example. And we've talked at great length about the magnitude and the wonder of the forgiveness that has been extended to us. Now in verse 14, as we began to consider last week, Paul says to us, beyond all these things, put on, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So what we find here in verse 14 in Colossians chapter 3 is a call to a unification based upon our mutual love for Christ and our overwhelming joy with regard to our salvation. Paul, of course, begins this passage, this segment of chapter 3, with the doctrine of election. It's interesting to me that a doctrine that is so divisive, so volatile with so many people, there are pastors who even refuse to say the word election from their pulpit, serves as the basis then to provide us for the motivation to do the things that we're called to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. Indeed, it's the focus, if you will, for Paul to motivate and move people into the dynamic of loving each other and demonstrating the reality of that in the way they treat each other. And so this love then is what binds us together, this love for each other as a reflection of God's love for us. And so as we know from verse 12, Paul has given us a list, a list of five virtues that every believer ought to display in their daily walk as the redeemed of Christ. And so what we know from verse 12, and we all like a list, we have five things that Paul has identified, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And these virtues are things that Paul says, as the redeemed of Christ, we ought to be demonstrating at various levels, and they ought to be growing in us as we grow in Christ. And we know that these, these virtues ought to be growing because of what Colossians 3.10 tells us, that God, through the Holy Spirit, is constantly working to form us into the image of Christ. We went to great lengths in verse 10 to make certain that we understood what that meant. Indeed, this image-making is in a constant state of process by God as we are being renewed. This constant state of renewal, being conformed to the image of Christ over and over to the point that we display these virtues in an increasing degree of depth and vigor. Now, these are things that we just don't simply do out of a, a begrudging duty. I'm going to be patient today because I have to be. Or I'm going to be kind today just because the pastor said I had to be kind. I may be kind on the outside, but I'm not kind on the inside. Well, that's not what Paul wants, and that's not what I want for you either. These indeed are virtues that ought to be part and parcel of the Christian life. And I think Peter teases out for us in a very dramatic way just how important this idea of the presence of these virtues in our lives is. Now, before we go to 2 Peter, I want to say this. There are, there are 
tendencies on our part where the focus does in fact simply become the performance of the virtue. I don't want that. I don't want that for you. But what I want for you is an understanding on your part that these virtues are indeed what Christians ought to demonstrate and do with each other and in the community in which they live and in particular the church. And it grows out of and comes out of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter, a familiar, a familiar epistle to us, of course. We have spent a lot of time in, in 2 Peter in Sunday school. And so Peter here and again, it's always remarkable to me the context for, for both Colossians and Peter. Paul, writing to a church that's being attacked by a false teacher, spends time dealing with the teaching of the false teacher to some degree, but spends more time grounding people in the finished work of Jesus Christ and pointing them to Christ as the motivation for the life that they're called to live. Peter, writing to a dispersed church, a church that's been persecuted, people have been taken from Rome and dispersed to the outer realms of the Roman Empire. You would think that Paul would be, or Peter would be spending a lot of time talking about just deal, things like worry and anxiety and the stress of life and things like that, which is what we would probably end up doing if we were the person to write the epistle. But no, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter takes people back to the idea of who they are, verses 1 through 4 in 2 Peter 1, and then demonstrates the reality of 1 through 4 in how they ultimately live and how they treat each other. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, so that reaches back into the first four verses of 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter spelled out the wonderful reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. We're not going to take the time to go back. We've done that before. But verse 5 importantly begins with the motivation. Now for this very reason also. What? What, Peter? Look what he says. Applying all diligence. So this is effort. This is, this is something that you're engaged in. You're not passive. You're engaged in the process. Paul is doing the same thing. Put on, apply all diligence. Do you see the similarity? Remarkable. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, what? Love. So we're going to see this love word repeatedly. And like Paul, Peter too concludes these virtues with the important aspect of love. And it's the same Greek word that Paul uses, that agape language. And so very importantly, Peter here, like Paul, is pointing us to the, the idea that there are certain characteristics that a Christian demonstrates throughout the course of their life as a consequence of God having saved them. God saved you for a reason. God saved you for a purpose. He didn't save you to give you your best life now. He didn't save you to make you fat, happy, and prosperous. He saved you to reflect the glory of his salvation in placing you in Jesus Christ. The virtues really are the manifestation of the reality of your union with Jesus Christ. All right? So if you, friends, listen, if you have been joined 
to Christ by the sovereign act of God, the consequences of that is necessarily that there is going to be a change in the way you think, act, and live. Peter then goes on to say this, and Peter really drives the point home more so than even Paul does. Paul does in other epistles, but Peter real, here really gives us a big, big push. Look what he says. Applying all diligence, we've read the virtues. Now look what he says in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The implication being there that one who says they know Jesus Christ, who has a genuine knowledge of Christ, a knowledge brought about by a radical transformation of regeneration wrought by the Holy Spirit in that person is going to necessarily then bear these virtues out in their life. And indeed, you're going to want to. It's going to become the desire of your heart. You're going to want to pe treat people with humility and patience and kindness and have self-control and to persevere and do the things that Peter and Paul are talking about. And the important thing is that as these virtues are in your life, Paul says, that, or Peter rather says, that they render you neither useless nor unfruitful, showing that you really do know the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. Now, you don't want to be in that category. That's not where you ought to be as a Christian. Now, I will say to you that there can be times in our lives when these virtues are not as vibrant and vigorous as they ought to be. We struggle with sin. We, we battle sin. We may have a period in our lives where things are seemingly more difficult and strident than they were at other times, but it's our charge to work through those things looking to Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. But Peter here is concerned about those who aren't demonstrating the reality of a true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, look what it says. Look where Peter takes, takes these people. Paul begins with it. Peter ends with it. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Peter's not saying that you work your way into heaven, but what he is saying is that those who are truly born again will enter heaven in the context of their pursuit and performance of these virtues. It shows the reality of one's conversion. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. The carnal Christian doctrine is an abomination. Many told to it and teach to it that a person can get saved, but they're never truly converted. They're never truly regenerated. They continue to live their lives as if they were never saved, but they're a carnal Christian. Well, that's an abomination, and it's contrary to what God's Word says. And I like the idea, too, that Peter, like Paul, ties this motivation, ties the reality of the presence of these things in a Christian's life back to the doctrine of election. You can't get away from it, friends. I'm sorry. Now, it's nothing to be afraid of. 
Because in the doctrine of election, see, we're talking about love. In the doctrine of election, you have a full-orbed manifestation of God's love for you. It is love that motivated God to elect you, to save you, to bring you into his family, to adopt you, to reconcile you, to deliver you from the kingdom of darkness and to place you into the kingdom of light. We ought to be overwhelmed. We ought to be giddy with the light. We ought to be skipping and hopping. I've said before, when you leave church today, I would imagine that you would want to skip out. Not skip church, but skip out the back door. Not the side door, by the way. I'm seeing an increasing number of side door departures, and I'm a little concerned about it. I'm going to have to talk to the deacons about maybe putting a slight electrical charge in that doorknob. <laughs> Sirens, yes, something. Warning, Will Robinson, they're leaving. So what we see here is a theme, do we not? We see, again, that Peter and Paul both are driving us back into a foundation that motivates this is not based upon mere, mere, mere subjectivism. He's not saying, well, if you feel like it, do it. If you're comfortable with it, be kind. If you want to, be patient. You'll get something back. No, he's talking about being motivated by a profound doctrine that demonstrates the love that God has for us and understanding it then makes me think, well, God saved me, God saved them, I'm going to love them the same way that God loved me. That's what this is ultimately about. So let's go back to Colossians. We go back to Colossians. Now again, friends, this is, this is shoe leather theology. The, as we've noted before, the proving ground of the Christian faith is in these issues. Forbearance, forgiveness, love, all of these things. They're not always easy to do. Some people are just not lovable people. Sometimes it's hard to be kind. Sometimes it's hard to be patient. Sometimes it's hard to have a heart of compassion. Sometimes it's hard to be gentle. But when we begin to think that way, when we begin to consider those qualifications, you must remember how hard was it for God to love you. Were you a catch? Did God look at you and say, wow, I, I've just got to save Joel Nelson? I mean, if I'm going to save anybody, it's him. He's just the most affable, friendly guy, and he's a pilot, so it's all good. No. No, God looks at us in the context of our depravity and our fallenness and extends to us a great mercy that we don't deserve. We don't deserve. It reminds me of Ruth and Boaz. There's this beautiful picture in Ruth where, where, where they're gleaning, and, and Boaz invites Ruth to come and sit at the table and to partake of all the bounty, and she had no right to be there. First of all, she's a Moabite, and God had told the Israelites, you have nothing to do with them, yet he brings her in, an extension of the gospel to the Gentiles, brings her in, sits her at the table, Boaz as a, as a foreshadowing of Christ, the kinsman redeemer, allows her, invites her, and feeds her abundantly so much so that she takes home a whole bunch of food to her bitter mother-in-law, Naomi. What a beautiful picture. We need to think more of ourselves in that context than we do about people who ought to have been given something because we're just so good. 
We just deserve it. We ought to have it. And so Peter, like Paul, emphasizes the idea that these virtues ought to be evident. They ought to be presence. And they ought to be there because of who we are. Again, capacity, identity, union with Christ. These are all the things, the themes that we've been talking about. The famous Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers once preached a message entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, wherein he powerfully implored his people to reject mere moralism and give their lives to the gospel, whereby the transforming power of the gospel would change their heart and, as a result, their affections. See, Chalmers understood that the gospel would not just merely create moral people. You may have a friend, a neighbor, who does not know Jesus Christ and yet is what? Moral. But that mere moralism is not motivated by what Peter and Paul are looking to here, which is a sacrificial form of love that empowers and energizes the virtues of which they are speaking. These virtues are given strength and meaning and substance and depth and color, HD, 5K, 1080p, whatever it is. It gives it all of that. And it makes it real. So when you, when you serve somebody, you do so out of a heart of compassion. That's really different, isn't it? To serve somebody that way. When I serve somebody out of a heart of compassion, I have zero expectation of getting anything back. The same thing with kindness and all of these other things. And so Paul here is making certain that we want to understand that there is an expulsive power of a new affection like Chalmers. Chalmers, the idea of his message was that our love for Christ should be such that it expels our desire for the world and self-motivation. It expels our, desi- expels our desires for the world's snares and drives us to love Christ more and live for him more earnestly and love our brothers and sisters in Christ even more. He would say this, we know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts and to keep in our hearts the love of God. It's well said. We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep in our hearts the love of God. It's interesting that when Chalmers died, just as an aside, over half the city of Edinburgh Scotland showed up for his funeral. What a, what a travesty to see Scotland failing so desperately right now, a nation that de- desperately needs the gospel again. And so, as Chalmers would emphasize, this love is not a duty one performs, like mere moralism. Rather, it is a delight for one to perform these things. It is an affection, listen to me, If you're going to write anything down, write this. It's an affection before it's a commitment. It's an affection before it's a commitment. So you're not going to do the virtues, or you may do them in a perfunctory way, but you're not going to do them in the way that either Paul or Peter intend. Paul and Peter both want us loving each other out of a commitment to Jesus Christ. 
with no expectation of anything in return. He wants us to do that in the context of both our relationships within the church, our relationships outside of the church, and as we will see in our relationships with our husband, our wife, our children, and indeed even doing so in some ways with our employer, which is significant. This is transformative. This is what kingdom people do. This is what the kingdom of Christ looks like. Those who are brought into the kingdom of Christ, those who are the citizens of this kingdom, demonstrate the virtues. And indeed, the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, has demonstrated all of these virtues perfectly, continuously. So we always get to look to him. We're always focused upon him. Even when we fail, we say, praise God, he never wasn't kind or patient or gentle or compassionate or lack self-control. We always have that great example for us and that great refuge, of course, as well in Jesus Christ. Paul would argue, and again Peter does too, that this change is wrought by our new nature. Chalmers would call it the constitution of our nature, which Chalmers noted in this particular sermon was and has been changed in our salvation and through the act of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And let's keep in mind, what is regeneration? What's new life? So, so friends, don't forget that. Don't forget this. You are new creation in Jesus Christ. New creation. So new creation means what? You're going to be doing something that's different than what you did before you were recreated, correct? You now have the ability, the DNA, if you will, to do these things. And so for Paul, that's incredibly important. So the result is a new heart that sees Christ is vastly more worthy of the heart's attachment, which in turn awakens a new and stronger affection that displaces the former affections for the world. Hence, the expulsive power of a new affection. And this is Paul's point here and in the entire epistle. He's saying, look at Christ as he has been doing. Look at him. Nothing else in all the world compares to Jesus Christ. Go back to chapter 1. I mean, Paul here sets out for us in chapter 1 all of the qualities of Jesus Christ in this magnificent colloquy, if you will, of a description of Jesus Christ, beginning with verse 15. We'll go back to verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That ought to be motivation enough, but then Paul illuminates who this Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, that is the church, the and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. 
For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What we see here is the fact that Jesus Christ is everything. He's number one. He is the head. He is complete, and we're in him. And so as his children, as having been placed in him, as Paul describes in the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, as we talked about that, that formation, that putting on that God did like he did with Adam in the garden when he clothed Adam and Eve after they had sinned, so too God with us, with Jesus Christ. And he continues to expound upon this. With election as the great expression of God's love for us and the motivation for why we love Him and others. And so, for us, we need to make certain um, that we understand this. So, in verse 14, Colossians chapter 3, 14, we talk about this issue of love and unity. Now, the human heart, of course, is no stranger to the concept of love or to the deep-seated yearning to find it. That's something that poems and magnum opuses have been written about, and indeed music is often written about this ongoing pursuit and of love and how wonderful and grand it is. But that type of love oftentimes is misplaced, and that's not what Paul is speaking to here. This is a different type of love. This is a love that's wrought within us and to us and towards us which we then demonstrate to others because of what God has done for us. It's just not a sentimental thing. And so for us as the redeemed of Christ, we need to make certain that we're just not thinking about this word love in a worldly context. There is a deep theological meaning to the word. Indeed, in the Greek, it's agape. It's that form of love that is unique to Christians alone. Only we can love this way. God loved us this way, so he has equipped us to love each other in that way. It's just not the phileo love, that brotherly kindness which the world can demonstrate. Indeed, we have a city called Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, which it is not. I remember we went there one time on vacation, and as we're leaving, I'm marching out the door with my family, young kids. We're going to go tour it around the city. The guy at the desk says, where are you going? Oh, we're going to go out and walk. He goes, no, you're not. It's, not. it's not safe. You shouldn't do that. So the city of brotherly love had lost its first love, apparently. No, this love is one that creates a meaningful bond, a meaningful bond with each other in Christ. And so Paul here does not leave us to guess what he has in mind as he uses this language of love here. The kind of love with which Christians ought literally to clothe themselves is the same kind of love with which God himself is clothed and which he so freely lavished upon us as his who in verse 12. What does he call us in verse 12? His what? Beloved. His beloved. Now that has significance in the context of understanding the overarching purpose of the church and what the church is, God's affection set upon a people who are the seed set apart to be what? An example to the world, to show forth God's glory. So that's, that's a dynamic aspect that we need to appreciate. 
And so in both places, both in verse 12 and here, he references, he uses the Greek word for love that had effectively been commandeered by the church to capture the uniqueness of the love that is only found in God, but which he also pours out in his people in salvation. And so when this word love, or when the concept of love is viewed in its broad sweep as that divine love revealed in Scripture, what makes it stand out is the fact that it is a love of self-sacrificing commitment. In particular, it is the love God expresses through the covenant He enters with His people, a relationship which has been well described as a bond of love a bond that was ratified ultimately through the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross. Paul touches on that point in Colossians chapter 1. He talks about the idea of us being reconciled. This again is a motivation that's brought about by his love for us. So for the Colossians to be reminded of that kind of love, the one that undergirded their very existence as a church, would have come as a sobering challenge to the divisive influences that were gaining momentum in their midst through the false teaching they were hearing. So again, you got the false teacher. What's he doing? He's giving them this kind of pagan syncretism, self-motivation, vision-driven, word-of-knowledge, experience-motivated type of teaching. A lot of legalism, a lot of experience that you have to have. The, the false teacher claimed to have had some type of unique vision within the, of, a, of a temple of some sort and that they needed to have these similar experiences in order to validate themselves. He created like two tiers of Christians, the ones who hadn't had the experience and the ones who had. He never talked about love. He talked about the law. He talked about a lot of things to do, don't touch, don't taste, those types of things, but he never pointed them to Jesus Christ. He pointed them back into themselves. Have an experience, have a vision, hear my word of knowledge, depart from God's word, listen to these things, don't pay attention to that. All of it was self-centered and self-focused. Sound familiar? Sounds like the church today, doesn't it? Turn the TV on, you're going to get a steady diet of that. That's what predominates evangelicalism today. And so we need to be reminded, as were the Colossians, that that is not the type of love of which we are speaking. And indeed, we ought to be more focused on this concept of love than we have been and are. Would not John write as a warning under the inspiration and direction of Jesus Christ to give a firm warning to the church in Ephesus about what? You have lost your first what? Love. Love for who? For Christ. He said they did many things well. He said they did all sorts of things. It was a church to be mimicked and modeled, but there was a problem. I have this against you. You have lost your first love. You don't love Jesus Christ, and I think it was in part due because they probably weren't loving each other as they ought to have been. You've lost your first love. For the Colossians, it would appear that would be the case as well. It's interesting, Colossians was a sister church to Ephesus. It wasn't that far away, far away. We know that Epaphras came from Ephesus to them as their pastor after having been converted by hearing the gospel preached by Paul. This is a common problem, so it wouldn't be shocking to us to find out that this was also creeping into the church in Colossae. It's always the problem within a church. Come self-focused, self-centered, motivated by your own performance, 
putting your fingers in your lapels, look at me, look how good we're doing, all the while Jesus Christ is fading into the background. And so, in the scale of priorities, Paul is saying you cannot afford to lose sight of the thing that matters most, and that is love. Love. And look what happens with this love. This love, this kind of love, binds everything together in perfect harmony. I love this. This, this is like good stuff. So this love... The words, I just love these kinds of passages because the words are so impactful and so meaningful. Look what he says. Beyond all these things, what's he talking about? He's talking about those other virtues. What he is saying is that those other virtues are meaningless if you have not bound them up in love. If they are not stuck together in love, if they are not performed in love. Look at Ephesians. Turn to the book of Ephesians with me. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Now again, why would Paul say that this doesn't matter if the motivation isn't right? Because then it becomes what? Mere moralism. It, doesn't, it becomes perfunctory. The motivation, the heart, it's not coming out of what? A heart of compassion. It's not doing something that's very important. Paul teases that issue out in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 2. Look what he says. Therefore, and we could go back into Ephesians chapter 4, and someday we will, um, and, and I'm not going to predict the time when that will happen. The, the Lord may come back before that happens. That's okay then we'll know it by reality. Verse 1, verse chapter 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. There again is that reference reaching back, Paul reaching back into the Old Testament to capture that, that, that church Israel motif. He keeps using that language. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Look at the language. And walk in love. So we're going to be imitators of God as beloved children. How am I going to do that? I'm going to what? Walk in love. What kind of love? Phileo love? Eros love? No, agape love. The same type of love that Christ has for his church. I'm going to see that same language in Ephesians chapter 4. Husbands, love your wives. Paul says in Ephesians, husband, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. So that theme keeps carrying through. So here too, in chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love. So when we walk, the Bible, when the, when the Bible uses the word walk, it's talking about the way we live. Okay? Whenever you see that, go to Galatians chapter 5. You'll see that. Walking in the flesh, walking in the spirit. It's the way you live. It's not like a particular walk, you know, walk this way. No. Walk, live. Perhaps some of you recall that scene from a particular movie, but we'll leave that alone for now. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Now look at that. There, there it is. Well, pastor, 
Why do I have to love that person? Well, friend, are you a Christian? Well, absolutely, pastor. We'll prove it. Love them. Well, come on now. You're going a little too far there. I mean, I come to church sometimes, but I don't have to love them, do I? Well, sure. In fact, you're going to serve them because you love them so much. Well, how in the world am I going to do that, pastor? Well, friend, are you a believer? Yes, I am. Well, then guess what? You have a gift. Well, what do you mean? Well, God gave you a gift when he saved you. So you mean to tell me that I have to give the gift that God gave me to someone else as an expression of my love? Absolutely, that's why you got it. That's why you have it. And so you use your gift as a loving demonstration to reflect what it is that God has given you. So we say, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and look what he did, and gave himself up for us. This love is a sacrificial love. This love is a love that never asserts itself above someone else. First Corinthians, turn with me there. We see in, in the conclusion of verse 2, this is an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This is, this is something that God loves and God likes, right? So look at First Corinthians. Probably can guess where we're going, right? 13. Look at this. This is a familiar passage. But perhaps familiar, familiarity has bred contempt in some. Because it's hard to read this chapter when you begin to break it down and consider the implications of it in the church. Look at this. If I speak with the tongues, verse 1, of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. So I want you to think about something while we're reading this. I want you to think about the virtues that have been identified in verse 12, the application of them in the context of forbearance and forgiveness, and then performing those things without there being any love behind them. Okay? What's that? That's dissonance. That's horrible. That's superficial. It's fake, it's false, and it's not of God. Paul is even saying here that perhaps some of you have a gift, a profound gift, a teaching gift, this idea of prophecy, idea of teaching and speaking, a speaking gift, edifying people in the Word. But if you're doing that without love, it's pointless. It's completely pointless. So look at this. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and again, we're not going to get into the whole issue of what tongues is. Tongues is a known dialect. In the book of Acts, people were given the gift of tongues. Why? Because the church was expanding and exploding, and we needed people who could speak, I don't know, Japanese, Swahili, whatever else, French, um, German. And so these people were gifted with a known language to go there and preach the gospel by and through which people would be saved. And when those people were saved, those people then began to preach the gospel, and the gift of tongues was no longer needed. Does that make sense? That's exactly what happened. Okay. But do not have love. I have become a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me what? Nothing. 
Absolutely nothing. Love is patient. Now look at this. Look how we begin to incorporate the idea of the virtues into the performance of love. So love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Oh, wait a minute, pastor. You're getting a little too close here. Now, Paul wasn't meaning, it didn't mean the same thing back then as it means now. Yes, it does. Sorry, you, you don't get that argument. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Oh, what? You mean, well, wait a minute. Maybe people at the Gospel Coalition should have read this passage before they pumped out their articles about mourning with mourners over Roe v. Wade. We don't rejoice in unrighteousness. Mm. But rejoices with truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Oh, wow. Wait a minute. So what happens? When I'm, when, so what Paul is saying here is that when I'm doing these virtues and they're not motivated by love, I'm acting like a child. What are children motivated by? Typically selfishness. Now I know, of course, yours are not. <laughs> nor are mine. So there are no children in here who've ever been motivated by selfishness. But in those occasions outside of us, when they are, we understand what that means, right? So don't act like a child. Don't act like a child. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Wow. So, friends, what we want to make certain is that we understand that all of the virtues that we've been looking at, the five virtues in Colossians 3, 12, the seven virtues in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, they're all bound together in love. And in that context, then, there is no lack of or wanting of perfection or unity. Look. Look at this, Colossians 3.14. Now look, go back to that passage. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It is the perfection. What Paul is saying is that love then provides the perfection of the other virtues and their presence in the body life of the church. When they're motivated by love, they are being performed in a way that brings about a perfect unity within the body. That's what Paul's saying. That's what the church needs to hear. As imitators of Christ, listen, how has Christ loved the church? Sacrificially. 
selflessly, sacrificially, permanently, always, so too should we as what? Imitators of Christ. Do you see what's happening here, friends? I mean, this is, this is rubber meets the road. This is the real deal. We do this, we can get through business meetings. We do this, we can put up with a lot of different things because we're motivated by something that eclipses all other things, and there'll be unity. Now, it's not unity on the basis of compromise. I don't have to agree. I'm not going to embrace error, and Paul is not calling for that at all. We know that to be the case because the whole motivation for this section of this epistle is the doctrine of election. So I don't compromise on the doctrine of election out of love. Love never causes me to compromise the truth. All right? Don't forget that. Love never causes me to compromise the truth. But what it does do is it motivates me to proclaim the truth. It motivates me to proclaim the truth. And to do so with passion and vigor and an energy that speaks to the idea that you and I believe it. I believe this. Do you believe it? Are your affections of a nature that are demonstrating the reality of your conversion? The expulsive effect of a new affection. Jesus Christ is our new affection. Do you know him? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? And, and this, friends, listen, this is, this is so critically important. When I ask you that question, these are the types of passage that ought to cause us to take pause for a minute and say, Lord, is this real for me? Do I, do I know this? Is this Am I just engaged in a moralism? Am I just doing these things because I think somehow it makes you like me more? Am I, am, I, am I loving people in the way that you have loved me in your church? Do I care for people that way? Is that the motivation? Friends, that's where we're supposed to be. That's a game changer. Do you know Jesus Christ? Well, if you don't, call upon his name and you shall be saved. And the Lord is gracious, and He extends great mercy, and He is loving, very loving, and He will surely, surely save you. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this great passage. Thank You for this encouragement, this exhortation. Help us, Lord, we pray, to do better, to love better, to love in that sacrificial way, to love Your church, to love what You've given to us. What a wonderful, wonderful blessing this is. How blessed we are to be able to be here today with each other, people who love each other in Christ. Help us, Lord, to see the value and the wonder of this passage. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.